Well, good morning, saints. Good morning. Today's date is September 5th, 2021. The title of today's message is Winning the War. Saints, we are currently living in unprecedented days, days of ineptitude, indecision, and the inevitable shifting of national powers as archons battle for control. Today, we are just six days out from the anniversary of the infamous 9-11 event, and our nation finds itself once again on the edge of national calamity. You know, in large part, as a populace, we have moved on to discuss more meaningful topics such as climate change, wow. infrastructure bills, wow. and ever-increasing gun control. <laughs> more important. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9-12 through 12 clearly states that the coming of the lawless one will be accompanied by a powerful delusion. Before our very eyes... Islamic militant groups are rising to a global prominence and power. They're even poised to reach heights not seen since the days of the Ottoman Empire. Now, while all of these events are true and are happening before our very eyes, it brings me great joy to say that here, in this house, we are Grafton citizens. Citizens of another kingdom, one born of heavenly and Israeli origin. Psalm 2, 1 through 5, says that the nations plot together in vain against the Lord's anointed. But he laughs because he has established his king on his holy hill, Mount Zion. Amen. American and European powers have waged battle after battle in Muslim-majority nations for a variety of motives and reasons, but to no avail. There is only one king who will bring a lasting kingdom and permanent deliverance for Israel. Saints, we are talking about the Messiah. We're speaking about the son of David. We're speaking about the one that will not prove to be a false hope. So many in our present age and political atmosphere have, but he will prove to be victorious in every way. Let me read to you Proverbs 27, verses 23 through 24 in the Lexham English Septuagint. Listen closely. You shall know the souls of your flock clearly and set your heart on your herd. Because a man's strength and power are not for eternity. And they do not transfer from generation to generation. Look, as the pillar and foundation of truth on earth, we would do well to take Deep warning and renewed encouragement from this scripture. To many, too many have labored for, in ministry for 20 years to simply pack up and go home or be called to another easier field. That's true. Like Jeremiah and men like him, we stand for God's will and his purposes. Amen. Even while the supposed priests and nobles of our nation cowtail and pray to be raptured from their responsibilities. <laughs> Cowards. Cowards! Before we get into the body of our message this morning, we have a few summary statements from a prophecy that this very body received in the last few days. The days of training are about to come to an end, and war will be upon you. I will require the highest of some of you in this room. 
I will require the lives of your children, for over the next 20 years I am going to bring birthing pains on the world like it has never been seen. You will see a shaking that has not been seen before in our time. I am stirring up my enemies. I am going to blot up the skies with sounds of war. Cities will be burned once more and pregnant bellies will be ripped open. There will be terror on the earth. Like a soldier led out of boot camp and onto the front lines, I am bringing you. Come on. Live your lives as men about to go to war. Get rid of desires for earthly possessions. Get rid of desires for healthy and prosperous futures. Sounds like burning up that chaff that we got this morning during the first set of worship. But look, as men about to go to war, train your sons as men being trained for war. Come on. Saints, Psalm 143 verse 10 says, may your good spirit lead me on level ground. Saints, that is our prayer today and our belief that he is leading us. May we be men of Issachar who know and understand the times that we live in. Yeah. As a collective body and brotherhood of Christ, we must win more than a battle or two ahead. But prepare to win the war that our almighty Yahweh Sabaoth is bringing us into. Amen. Psalm 144 and verse 1 says, Praise be to the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. So saints, the question must come out, how do we win the war? I'm so glad that you asked that question because where we're going to begin this morning may not meet your expectation. Come on church, we will start this morning by training our thoughts in 1 Chronicles 28 verse nine, say winning the war as you are turning to this page. And let's get started. Verse 9. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion, with a willing mind. Amen. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. Wow. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Come on. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now. For the Lord has chosen you to be, build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. This is the king of Israel speaking to his son. Telling him that it is the Lord who understands the motive behind his thoughts. Yeah. I can imagine this was a revelation to Solomon. That the Lord knows the motives behind the thoughts. But you and I don't understand the motive behind our thoughts. Nope. We don't understand the motives behind it. As we move forward, listen to what David's son says on the matter. This is Proverbs 16, verse 2. All a man's ways seem innocent to him. Come on. All of them. All of a man's ways seem innocent to him. But motives are weighed by the Lord. Have you ever found yourself saying something like, My heart is right before the Lord? What about this one? I am innocent in this matter. Have you ever found yourself saying phrases like this? At least thinking it. Oh yeah. All of our ways seem innocent to us. We do not know when our motives are impure. This brings about a horrifying conclusion about our motives. We're incapable of understanding them. So what in the world do we do about this issue? Proverbs 20. Five through six is going to help us out. 
Say, when the war is your turning there. Verse 5 says, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters. Somebody say deep waters. Deep waters! Deep waters can mean a lot of things to different people. But in this case, it has to do with something that is unreachable, unsearchable. Despite all of man's advancements, something that he is incapable of conquering. But fortunately, the verse goes on to say something. But a man of understanding draws them out. Saints, yes, that is it. That is the answer that we need to our own condition. The scripture itself points to our own miserable condition. My own miserable condition. The inability to understand why we think what we do. Saints, you may know what you think, but you don't know why you think what you do. Praise be to God that it also contains the cure for our wayward hearts. Saints, we need our brothers to our left and right. Right. Men of understanding, not just friends, but brothers who are men of understanding to help us draw it out of the waters of our own heart. We need them with us. We need them working with us. We need them challenging our motives. And helping us to unearth and unroot the ones that are corrupted and we couldn't see for ourselves. Now, we still haven't looked at verse 6 yet. Many a man claims to have unfailing love. Saints, do you agree with the proverb? Many a man claims to have unfailing love. But a faithful man, who can find? Saints, we're watching all around many men claim to have unfailing love. And as we have seen... 20-year promises can come to a sudden and unfulfilling end. However, in this place, we all have the potential to raise up a rich storehouse of faithful men of understanding. Now, speaking of these faithful men, you might find that other translations use the word loyal instead. Hmm. We're going to go to Hosea 6, verse 4 together, and this will help us with the thought process of loyalty in the kingdom as we forge ahead. This is how Hosea 6, verses 4 through 6 read in the NASB. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Now listen, Ephraim and Judah are getting the chastisement of a lifetime in this passage. They have both been able, to, been able to portray loyalty for a time, but it is faded away as quickly as the morning cloud or the morning dew on the ground. It's just faded away. It hasn't lasted. That's much like the last 20 years that the United States has been involved militarily in Afghanistan. The projection by the leaders of this nation have been progress. 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 We're making progress the last 20 years. Yeah, sure. We might have started out winning a few battles, but those victories soon gave way to massive defeats, much like the morning cloud that vanishes or the morning dew that gets licked up by the heat of the day. Unfortunately, this kind of fickle loyalty only proves itself out in utter defeat in the war as a whole. When the enemy dominates the land and takes control in a matter of weeks, Has there not been disloyalty in the camp? 
The scripture is already highlighting to us the product of this vacillating volatility within Israel. They're being addressed as two houses, not one, separate from one another. Verse 5 gives us further insight into the final destruction that this detrimental way of life produces. Saints, hear this. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. You just heard the verse. It said, therefore. Therefore, because their loyalty is like mist, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. A lack of loyalty in the covenant that the Lord has spoken, it results in his people being hewn in pieces. A division and separation that eventually ends in death itself. The continuation of divisions, it has no end. It doesn't stop just with Ephraim and Judah. It only serves to drive wedges further into the goal of unity, decimating the entire people group into pieces. Have you not seen this in the diaspora where they're scattered as a result of sin and disloyalty? How can we repair this kind of broken condition? The Lord is after loyalty in his people. He's after loyalty in his house and among his men. He's after men who will carry that loyalty through and stand the test of time to win the war. Church, say loyalty. 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 Let's look at verse 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. Ooh, come on now. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I love when the word of God dictates my motives and my actions and where they should be. Listen, we can be seemingly sacrificial with our schedules, our finances, whatever it is. But if the foundation of those sacrifices is not based on the loyalty that's, that we establish with the body of Christ, then the Lord is not pleased with them. It has to be based on the loyalty with the body. So I have to ask you, did the Lord call you to this body? Yes. Of course, it's a resounding yes. Once you've answered that question, listen to me. Never, say never, never, never renegotiate that answer. Amen. The biblical model of covenant loyalty shows us that conflict is inevitable, but unity is required. We're going to run into difficult times, but the requirement is always the same, that we must remain unified. We must lay a more solid foundation of loyalty with one another here in this place. We must do it. We must labor to involve each other in the sacrifices and decisions that we believe are the Lord. When we as a body of Christ are in agreement, moving together as one, it is then that our sacrifices are pleasing our king. Amen. When we're moving together, that's what's pleasing our king. And our confidence moving forward together reaches an all-time high. Now, Peyton, it's at that point. The point when our confidence reaches an all-time high with that kind of confidence. Yes. We can say together, come what may. Amen. No conflicts. No opposition. No fierce trials can steer us away from our direction or knock us off course. Yeah. When we're confident like this, we can move forward together. And it doesn't matter what stands in our way. We will knock it down and defeat it together. Yeah. Turn with us to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, as we begin to broach the subject of attaining this kind of unity that we so desperately need. Saints, this is going to be fun. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. 
A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. Can I get an amen in the room? For any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. See, I've tried to explain this to the lone police officer that he's a single witness and it was not sufficient. Unfortunately, he did not heed the Torah. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, guys, I'm being dramatic with this passage, but the reality is that you know it very well. It's established in this church. We know that serious matters must be established by two or three witnesses. Matters of judgment, charges against someone, matters of life and death, all by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, while this is certainly the context of Deuteronomy 19, we want you to listen to 2 Corinthians 13 and observe how Paul exegetes this particular concept for the church. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Listen in to what Paul says. Listen to what he's actually saying. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter. Every matter. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, if you're hearing every matter, wouldn't you be inclined to say, Paul, you've kind of gone too far. Do you? Judah, do you think he means every matter or just the ones that I think I need help on? I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to witness about the things I'd rather not talk about. But, uh, I, I mean, he is the Apostle Paul. I'm pretty sure that he meant every matter. The reason he's doing this is Paul did not trust the motives of, of his own heart. And neither should you, church. You need matters vetted and established by the unity that comes from the brotherhood. All right. <laughs> We're going to retread that one more time. If the apostle Paul does not trust the motives of his own heart, but requires that there's two to three witnesses, what should that mean for us, saints? We need our, we need our brothers. Church, we are talking about loyalty to unity in every matter. Not just judgments or situations you feel are too difficult for you to decide for yourself. You might be here today thinking that's just a one-off from Paul. Maybe he said it, and contextually, it meant something else. I'm inclined to say no. Listen to the words, Jesus, the words of Jesus as he prays for his disciples and for his believers that were coming after them in John 17 and verse 20. This is going to be from the ESV. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Man. I in them and you in me, that they may become, listen church, perfectly one. Perfectly. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Let us help you navigate this complex passage for a moment. <laughs> we want to hone in on the phrase, perfectly one. We want to do that because our natural inclination is to hierarchy. Like, this person's the head, 
This person comes next. There's a third in charge, and his name is so-and-so. Yet we all often proclaim very quickly, no, but we're in unity. We see a hierarchy, but we are in unity. Well, we're mostly in unity. Uh, We're in unity when we agree on each other. Uh, We're in unity when we agree about the things that we're willing to talk about. Okay, can you see how this perfect unity in the pursuit thereof is falling apart quickly? Doesn't sound perfect. We... Like John 17 are speaking about a supernatural unity that goes on display to show the glory of God to the rest of the world. That's the kind of perfect unity that we're after. Come on, church. We're talking about more than an axiom. We're talking about more than just a print on the wall. Christ is speaking to his disciples about perfect unity. He is able to create that in us. It will cost something from us, but he will bring it about Hearing the intercession of Jesus on behalf of his disciples and those who would later believe their message. So that means this is a message of intercession for you, for me, that we might have this perfect unity. For those that would later believe. With that in mind, we want you to consider Hebrews 5 verses 1 through 4 as we pick up together there. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. Now, please, for a moment, consider the example that is Jesus, our high priest, who portrayed through his life was full of moments of crushing weakness, while making sacrifices for us. Consider the garden event. He even was brought to the point of proclaiming, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Saints, this is Luke twenty-two forty-two. Can you see the perfect son of God choosing to lay his own will and motives down for the Lord's? Can you see him being subject to weakness in the moment? These were excruciating moments for our high priest. Yet Hebrews goes on to make the bold claim that these moments were actually honor that the father had conferred upon the one whom he had chosen. Continue reading in verse 4 with us. No one takes this honor. Say honor. Honor. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. Listen, moments of weakness... Seasons of weakness, permanent fixtures of weakness Uh in your own life that God has placed there. These are not burdens to sniff contemptuously at. We can't treat them as something that is not from the Lord. These are placed in our lives as a badge of honor. Confirming our call and moving us forward into maturity. You want to press on into maturity, church? Absolutely. These God-ordained weaknesses we have not taken upon ourselves, but they are from our gracious Father, proving our God-given call and a badge of honor that we proudly, proudly wear for our King. Now that you are beginning to understand the honor that God-given weaknesses are in the life of a believer, 
This should cause you to view Paul's dissertation in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 with brand new eyes. It is in response to selfishly motivated leaders who were misguiding the church by operating in their own charisma, their own wealth, and their own sacrifices of strength. For brevity's sake, we will be highlighting key parts of this passage in order to broaden your understanding of the kinds of honor and God-given weakness that we are speaking about. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. It says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Consider how helpless, consider how powerless you would feel chained to a post and beaten to the point of near death. You are in a situation that you can't do anything about. Verse 25 says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I'm going to go ahead and catch a downshift because I want you to interact with this in the same way that we have. We preach these things as accommodations of faith, and rightly so. But I want you to personally consider how helpless and powerless you would feel floating in the open sea. There are a lot of men here that uh, dream of being beaten for the gospel, maybe even being stoned for the gospel. How many of you have dreamed of being dropped in the sea for the gospel? Can a human being be in a more helpless situation other than stranded in the ocean? It's not exactly what we were designed for. We were made of the earth. With that in mind, I want you to consider how Paul is righteous, but experiencing weak situations that he has absolutely no power whatsoever to change. Listen how Paul expounds. And toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst. Often without food and cold and exposure. Consider how helpless and powerless you would feel when you cannot keep your own body warm or fed. You're in a situation that you can do nothing about. But if you couldn't close yourself, but you learned a glory and weakness, you could say that you're winning the war wearing the wardrobe of weakness. (laughs) What about verse 28? And apart from other things... There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Consider how helpless and powerless you might feel when there are serious problems in the churches and you can't get to them because you're in jail. You're in prison. You're incarcerated. There are also no phones and no email. You must wait to hear. Wait to send responses and then wait to hear results again. It takes months. You are in a situation that you cannot do anything about. All right, mamas. How desperately weak do you feel when you know that your children, grown or not, are in a dangerous situation and you can't get to them? Come on, you got to talk to me. Somebody say, how do you feel? I don't know what's going on. We're going to talk to the husbands and they'll help us fix it. Men, how would you feel if your sons that you raised up were planted in Turkey or planted in Israel or planted across the seas and you realized that they were dying and being persecuted and you couldn't speak to them for a year except by letter? He's not speaking about a loose association. 
He's speaking about a brotherhood that he has no power to help other than to pray and send God's word and believing it will reach them in the next year. How helpless, how powerless. Perhaps this is why he says in verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak. Who is weak in this world and I am not. He's watching his sons. Who is made to fall and I am not indignant. Since this verse is universally misunderstood, Paul is in a position of weakness because he has no power to control the actions of anyone else or the ability to help anyone else. And he's saying, I've been inwardly burned for the righteousness, for the salvation of those entrusted to me. And yet he's not the one in control. God is. Anyone who feels like they are in a disadvantaged, powerless situation, Paul is saying, so am I. You struggle not to sin in these situations, and you think that I don't struggle? You can hear the man's tone. He's bearing his heart before God. Listen to verse 30. I must boast. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Oh, poor little baby in a basket. Yeah, in a basket. Baby Moses. Now, when we read this, our initial conclusion is, wow, Paul was so strong and insightful that he got away. But think about it. Yet, at this, yet the point of him mentioning the situation is that he was trapped in a basket. <laughs> Paul, the apostle Paul, was trapped in a basket. He had no power to stay. And he was leaving behind disciples and brothers in Damascus who would have to face the persecution without him. Can you imagine that for a pastor and an apostle? No. To have to be let down in a basket, hiding, leave. Knowing your disciples are facing persecution, it's weakness. Consider how helpless, how powerless you would feel as a grown man being lowered in a basket, baby, like a baby in a basket, as Nick said. Leaving behind disciples, fleeing to the next town. Imagine you are in a situation like this that you can do nothing about. But for Paul, we want to call him the wicker basket warrior. Verse uh, chapter 12 verse 1 says I must go on boasting wow now you have more insight into why he is saying that phrase boasting right though there is nothing to be gained by it I will go on divisions and revelations of the Lord I know a man I mean theoretically speaking I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which, may, which man may not utter. Put yourself in this situation. You had this great, phenomenal, deep revelation. Everyone's attacking you, questioning your decision. And you can't even explain what's motivating you. What you saw? Are you serious? That's a weak situation. Yeah. Consider how helpless and powerless you would feel if God had shown you something that you're not even allowed to tell others about. 
You're in a situation and you can't do anything about it. You're powerless. We're going to skip down to verse 7 together. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Saints, this is why we know Paul is talking about himself in 12, 1 through 4, about the man caught up to the third heaven and surpassing greatness of revelations. Paul knows that he is experiencing these weaknesses as an honor because they are serving to carve out the conceit that is currently present in him. Saints, we would not typically say that about Paul, but he saw the condition of his heart. Imagine how in touch with the motives behind his own thoughts Paul must have been. Consider what great faith and covenant loyalty it must have taken to trust the men around him who said, you must be lowered in a basket like a little baby Moses. It is a tangible demonstration teaching us that Paul understood that his own motives were not always pure. How much did Paul need the God-given brothers that he had around him? Consider the alternative. Paul could have refused and in a sacrifice of his own strength, disobeyed the leading of the spirit through his brother's voice and been martyred in that city simply because he stayed. Wow. By all appearances, he would have won the battle, man. Proclaiming, people would be proclaiming. He's a martyr for Christ. Let us celebrate this seeming victory. But you and I would know that he would have lost the war of his future ministry. Fortunately, Paul laid down a phenomenal example for us. Such a good example. Let's continue in 12.8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Church, are you gaining a deeper insight to what Paul is really getting at? All of these items were outside of Paul's control. He had no power to change them. He was truly boasting in weakness that were not weaknesses that were not the result of sin, but were a God-ordained honor in his life. They were his badge of honor. These weaknesses brought about by the Lord's own hand and will were the very things that served to strengthen the man of God and mature him through dependency on the Lord and on his brothers. What about your own life, though? Does the intensity of the situation affect the value of your brother's counsel? Come on. Does it change based on how intense the situation is? Or even the value of the men themselves? Maybe you have a situation that is difficult and you, you're not just lessening the value of their counsel, you lessen them as a man. Wow, I'm in a difficult situation, Peyton, so I'm going to need your help on this one, and I'm going to value you like I've never before just because of the situation that I'm in. It fluctuates. Well, what was I before? Uh, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, I think we need some refinement. Woo. Church, let's move on together and unpack this concept in Romans. We are going to hit a lower gear as we go to Romans 12, starting in verse 9. You guys, tune your ears into this passage. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. 
Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Hear this. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Man, I love that word honor in this passage. Like Biden, who honored the sacrifices of men's lives that were lost in Afghanistan by bouncing and bowing out of there. You know, we like to call that the Biden way. <laughs> well, some men have called that kind of behavior a Biden move. Oh, Judah, you know, others in astonishment have said, Bud, please. <laughs> Honor. Like waving the American flag and proclaiming victory while we are fleeing and leaving U.S. citizens stranded in a hostile Muslim nation? Like that kind of honor? No. This is not the type of honor that Romans had in mind, even if that's what our politicians are currently professing. While we're talking about current events, what about the way the church world honored the mandate for not forsaking the fellowship of believers? that Hebrews 10, 25 speaks about during these uh, COVID lockdowns. This is not the type of honor that Romans is speaking of. Yeah. Let us show you what ki the kind of honor that Paul is actually talking about. We have a couple of slides for you. You guys ready for some slides? Yeah. Are you still with us? Yeah. Church, you want to win the war? Yeah. Then let's move forward. In our first slide, you can see the word for honor in Romans 12, 10 is 5092. This word, next slide, please is, help me out, brothers, Time. 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 Ooh, it's a feminine noun. Oops. If you look at the bottom of this slide in the outline of biblical usage, listen to this. A valuing by which the price is fixed. Say fixed. Fixed. In days like this, where we had the greatest price spikes that this country has seen in the last 30 years, we're, we're talking about gas prices. Have you guys experienced... Uh, inflation and gas prices. Absolutely. How about yes. groceries? Yeah. Man, I got to tell you, steak's getting expensive. <laughs> and even guns. No. Come on, you Texans. The actual value of the bills you have in your pocket right now are at an all-time low. It's true. Knowing what you know now about the biblical usage of this word, let's read verse 10 together again as you discover what Paul in Romans is really saying about the value of your brothers in your own eyes. Come on. Romans 12 verse 10 is going to teach us how we need to value the brothers to our left and right. What yeah. that looks like. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Assign a fixed value to your brother that elevates him above you. Yeah. Let me say that one more time. Assign a fixed value to your brother that elevates him above you. In these turbulent times turbulent times that we're in. Yeah. We are not talking about the stock market. We are not talking about vacillating emotions, circumstances, or difficulties between you and your brothers or between this body. Preferences about your brother's personality, performance, <laughs> or productivity may shift day by day, but their God-ordained value cannot shift and it must not vacillate. Come on, that's a good word. Saints, we're talking about a fixed value that determines the outcome of the war between spiritual powers. Spiritual powers that affect nations 
and the very plan of God itself. We want to win the war, and we need each other to do it with a fixed, permanent value that will not shift during combat. We will win this war. Yahweh Sabaoth has called together the brothers that you see present in this room today. Somebody say amen. Amen. And he has called together the brotherhood of the one association. Brothers in this war must possess account balances that are fixed in your eyes. And you, in their eyes, this is a value that far outweighs the backing of the U.S. military. Or Social Security. Or the Federal Reserve. Or any other false carnal securities that are proving to perish with use. You know, perhaps this is why Paul tells us the following in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort. Make every effort. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Church, say, make every effort. Make Make every every effort. We have another slide for you. Can you handle another slide? This word, and my brothers are going to help me because they are much better at Greek and speaking than I am. I think that says speedo. I think it says speedo. No. Spadezo, I think. Spadezo. We're going to go with spadezo because we're the ones with the mics. Spadezo, if you look here, some of the definitions are eagerness, diligence, to be zealous, to hurry, to hasten, uh, earnest and earnestness. As you can see on the slide, some of the typical definitions are displayed here. The Septuagint uses this word as hurried or hasty and shows us the intensity of the Greek word. In fact, when you look at Spadezo in the book of Job, the word is translated as troubled. You guys ready to look at the LXX? We have another slide for you about this word Spadezo, which in Ephesians 4 is make every effort. If you look into the Septuagint, and you look at the five times that this word in the Greek occurs in Job, you get something that is very, very moving and powerful. Job 4.5 has, when grief comes on you and devastates you, you yourself are troubled. Man, doesn't that change the outcome of this word and how you view it? Like trouble at work or like trouble, my wife or all of my children just died. My business is burning. I'm being afflicted with sores. Yeah, like think about the type of affliction that Job went through in his life during this time. I should remember it. I become troubled and grief seizes my flesh. That's troubling. Disastrous war troubles you. Look at the last one. But the Lord weakened my heart and the Almighty troubled me. Wow, when the Almighty troubles somebody... What does that feel like? Spudezo, this word, it's more than just being eager. It is troubling yourself for something. And this definitely begins to communicate the intensity that Paul intends to display in Ephesians chapter 4. After looking at his usage in Job, which again displays kind of the intensity that this word carries. Now we're going to look at the usage of this word in the Newer Testament in the same grammatical construction. 
the same exact conjugation and part of speech. In the following verses, this is exactly the same way you would utilize the word. Not just a root, exactly the same. So we're going to throw a slide on the screen. We're going to work through 2 Timothy, Hebrews 4, and Galatians 2. And obviously Ephesians 4 is where we began. 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best. Spudezo. Be eager. Make every effort. Trouble yourself in the same way that Job was to present yourself to God as one approved. Does that make sense? Yeah. Guys, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So how eager, how hurried, how willing to trouble ourselves should we be for unity? About as much as you're eager to present yourself to God as one who is approved. Unity in Ephesians 4 is parallel with rightly handling the truth or being a heretic in 2 Timothy 2.15. How serious do you think Paul is about this kind of unity? Very serious. Listen to Hebrews 4.11. Let us therefore make every effort, every effort, spadezo, be eager, do your best, trouble yourself like Job in his affliction. Spadezo, every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Church, how eager, how hurried, how willing are you to trouble yourselves for unity? About as much as you are eager to enter the rest of God. Your eternal state in Hebrews is described with the same kind of effort or trouble. Trouble, eagerness. Unity in Ephesians 4 is on the same parallel as your eternal state in Hebrews 4.11. Let's look at our final passage on the subject in Galatians 2.10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I had been eager to do. Spadezo, making every effort, doing my best, troubling myself like Job did. This may be hard to understand in our setting. I mean... After all, we have an overgrown, well-fed, able-bodied, homeless contingent in Houston, don't we? Yeah, that's yep. true. It's all thanks to Lena Hidalgo as of late. But that's not the context of this poor, who were the original subject matter of the text. They would be without hope in this world, save the generosity of the righteous. Yeah. yeah. James will give us greater understanding about who Paul is exactly speaking of. James 1.27 says, Religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. How eager, how hurried, how willing are you to trouble yourself for unity? Think about that for just a moment. About as much as you should be eager to remember God's prioritization of the poor, those who are weak, those who are helpless, about as much as you're eager to obtain a pure and faultless religion in the sight of God. We're speaking about the type of poor that if there was not grace, mercy, and charity given from the righteous, they would die any second. Some 2,300 references from the Old Testament to the New are specifically about God's preferential treatment of the poor. Hey, to disregard the poor, the widows, to mistreat an orphan, 
is on the same level in God's eyes as you disregarding unity. Wow. Exact same tier level. So when we say we've been unified, is it really perfect unity as God describes it? We're going to continue in Ephesians 4 in the exact same train of thought that Paul is rolling with. And it will show us how we get into perfect unity. Oh, Do you yeah, want perfect come on. unity? Oh, yeah. come on, things are heating up in the house of God. Ephesians 4 verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. So what is this apportioned grace that Christ has lavished on us? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the manifestation of this grace are the gifts that were given to men. The fivefold ministry of God presents to build up the body of Christ. Remember, this is a continuation of Ephesians 4, 1 through 5 that we read earlier. Keep that in the back of your mind. We are about to find out why we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You guys are ready to discover that with us? Yes. Verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? And he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave, like a gift, some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Somebody say, these pastors build me up. These, oh, pastors, these pastors build, build me, up. me up. And man, do they do a fine job of it. Yeah, amen. Now, that small portion of this beautiful passage is usually where we stop. Typically. Tune your ears into what verse 13 continues to teach us. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, mature. attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We all. Hmm. Who's Paul speaking about here? Hmm. Is he speaking about just the sheep in the body? Or is he speaking just about the leaders? By the way, what do we usually refer to Paul as? The Apostle Paul? Perhaps he is speaking about the complete body of Christ. The singular unit that he ordained. We all reach unity. We all are becoming like him. We all reach unity and become mature. Paul is speaking here, which means that he is including himself and each of the other five-fold leaders in the group as well. Teachers, prophets, pastors. The five-fold collectively is a grace, a gift yes. to the collective community of God, and all parts together are a gift to each other. And they grow in faith, grow in maturity, grow in unity together. And I want you to contemplate this. We are all gifts. And I'm going to have some fun with this. Cody, tell me I'm a gift. I'm a gift. Cody's a gift. What about you, Steve Thomas? Are you a gift? I'm a gift. Every yeah. member of the body that Paul is speaking about is a gift to the body, causing us to grow up collectively. Not one of us is left out or separate from the other. And it must be this way if we are going to win the war, not just a few battles by anointed leaders. Yes, come on. I want to win the war. Let's look at verse 14. Then we will no longer be oh, infants. We will no longer be infants. We, we will no longer 
be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, or blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, say instead, instead, instead speaking the truth in love, we, we will, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. Ooh. Grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There's a reason I'm emphasizing this. Despite the normal import that the fivefold ministry builds up the church, which is true, it's less than half the message. This whole body, joined together, will build itself up in love through truth build itself up in love through truthful speech man we can learn from that right this church is 19 years old and as one cohesive unit we will enter into maturity together ensuring that every part is ready to be a cohen to be a priest ready for combat and ready to pay the full cost to win the war now, we are a full gospel church. And as we stated earlier, we want you to have the full message. Unlike the full-fledged lies born of half-truths that have been fed in the previous days. Okay. So this morning, we want you to contrast the full message that full we message. preach that comes from the full counsel of the Word of God with the message that was reported from this nation's own political pulpit just a few days ago. You guys ready for a quote? As we carry out this departure, we have made it clear to the Taliban, if they attack our personnel or disrupt our operation, the U.S. presence will be swift and the response will be swift and forceful. We will defend our people with devastating force if necessary. Swift, 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 swift. It's like spadezo swift, like troubled in your soul, a matter of eternity I will defend. Or like perhaps we'll send a little drone to blow up a donkey and pretend that we were doing something useful. The half-truth of defending U.S. citizens with devastating force has amounted to a full-fledged lie. Deception born out of the statements such as these compel us as the church to remove our distinction as the body of Christ on this earth and elevate our deep need for perfect unity together. For this reason, it is necessary that after covering Ephesians 4, that we dive straight into Ezra 5, ensuring that we have the full counsel of God, not just half of it. Ezra 5, verses 1 through 5. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then, the, uh, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Oh, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Amen. So Haggai... Zechariah, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, even the author Ezra into the mix. Man, that is a five-fold A-team if I've ever seen one. Now, when you hear these names, do you think like, oh yeah, that's C-string. Oh no, no, they're I the mean, best of the best. Zechariah saw a vision of the returning son and all Israel mourning and repenting and him delivering the world. Matt, D-team. Definitely C-team. D-team. No, no. Now, 
No, church, they were rebuilding the house of God. And man, their team was certainly equipped to do it, right? Were they equipped for the work? Verse 3, at that time, Tatanai, governor of trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked, what are the names of the men constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews. Come on now. And they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. The eye of God was on their elders? Yeah. Why? Why was God's eye on the elders? Were they the ones transporting those bricks because they had massive physical strength? No. Were they the ones governing the people, handling the day-to-day tasks of the priesthood, or seeing visions of the future? No. No, No, none of those performance-oriented assessments apply here. It's because they were men who were loyal to God's covenant. Oh, come on, more than missed. They were loyal to the covenants, and God's favor rested on them. We focus on hierarchies. It's in our nature. You see it with children. Give them about five minutes and they'll figure out their little pecking order, even if there's a couple swings. We are learning to adopt the biblical mindset. Now, we focus on who can preach the best. We know this to be the case. Who can prophesy the loudest? All of these things have constantly fluctuating values that are based upon our outward performance. The men in Ezra's day, however, had loyalty that was born from above and did not shift like shadows. And they accepted nothing but the whole gospel truth of God's unified body, the fivefold and the elders with the workers in one hand. This served as their foundation for all future exploits. They understood that they were a team and a body that desperately needed every single member. They were being challenged by their weak situation and found the favor of God by standing together. The work did not cease because of the overall unity that these men possessed, including the elders with whom God's favor rested and with all the people as one collective unit. Saints, look me in the eyes. This is how we win the war. Let me ask you, are you accepting your own discernment as a sufficient amount of unity? Is it sufficient for you? Affording yourself the victory in battle, but unknowingly costing you the war? Have you been making decisions on your own, forcing your wife to suffer submission to those errant decisions, all the while intoxicated on your manufactured false sense of unity? This is much like fighting a battle after battle since the year 2001. Proclaiming progress every time. Making progress. Oh, we're winning. Things are getting better. We're establishing a structure and an infrastructure. But in the end, you have nothing to show for it. This will cause you to lose the war. Have you begun to build a team between families? You're excited about it. And you're now kings unto yourselves. You might have a few self-stimulating successes, but without attachment to the larger body and attachment to its leadership, you're a finite figure. That's all you are. 
doomed to end your term in disdain. This kind of broken unity will cost you the war if you continue in it. The kind of unity displayed between the fivefold, between the elders, between every other worker aspiring to become what their leaders are, will win the war. Yeah. Whether it's elders or fivefold, that collective unity together will win the war. Yeah. We are done with toxic independence. Yeah. We are done with a false sense of unity. We are done rejecting the favor of God that comes with demanding, refusing, or ignoring anything less than total unity yeah. with this body and with its leaders. That's right. Saints, we will be built up together Hallelujah. like this. Come on. We're going to move to Ezekiel 37. And together we will see how we might inspire that future growth. How we might build each other up and build each other up into the army of God. Come on, the army that will win the war. Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was on me. And he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Yeah. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very dry. Dry bones. Now after coming from our passage in Ephesians 4, you should be making connections between the ligaments and sinews found in that chapter and the dry bones that we see here in the first two verses. These bones represent problems, insurmountable issues, immature areas in need of resurrection life. Come on. And Ezekiel is walking back and forth among them, getting a full perspective of their state of the union. Come on. I want you guys to think about some dry, dusty bones that dry you've bones. seen. <laughs> I want you to think about some of those problems that you've been privy to. Some of those issues that seem absolutely insurmountable to you. Areas in your own life, areas in others that you've seen that are immature and are desperately in need of change. Yeah. Those are the kind of dry, dusty bones that we're talking about this morning. Yeah. Look, the Lord asks a question in verse 3, and it's an important one. He says, he asked of me, son of man, can these bones live? The phrase son of man. It's not a very empowering statement. Clench with it for a moment. This is like addressing someone as a son of Adam. Wow, how powerful. <laughs> what about a son of one made out of the dirt? Oh my goodness, you must have strength. The Lord asked this dirt-born, earth-dwelling man, can these bones live? Dirt-born, earth-dwelling man that was nonetheless called of God said, I said... Sovereign Lord, you alone know. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty honest right there. The honest answer from Ezekiel's heart was that he had no idea if they could live. If it was even possible that life could come forth from these dry bones. Or from these problems. These areas of immaturity. These areas of desperation. The things that were crying out for resurrection but had no life currently. Since I got to tell you that I too have empathized with Ezekiel's response in many situations. Yeah, me too. Often in my own soul and in other souls. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm just not sure that it's going to work out. Consider this for just a moment. Ezekiel responds with honesty and recognition 
of the problem. There's a kind of state of affairs, how our peace with God is, that we're going to learn to walk back and forth through a little bit, be able to recognize it and stand in the reality of it. With that in mind, as we hit verse 4, God has a prescription. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Remember, Ezekiel was told to prophesy, but isn't some measure of faith in this situation required? He's already said that he doesn't know if they can live. He's expressed no faith. Nor has he seen any vision that it will come to pass. He's just been told to prophesy, and he's going to do it in faith. Come on. Nevertheless, the Lord tells him to prophesy despite his own despair and his own unbelief. Now, church, watch what happens when obedience rises in Ezekiel, despite what he sees with his eyes. Verse 5. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. Yes. Nevertheless, despite what he saw, he was to prophesy what the Lord says it will be. And in doing so, he's expressing trust that God would indeed make it so. Yes. When we are in those moments of despair, those seasons of hopelessness, they're difficult, Come on. but we have a job to do. Yes. It's to prophesy yeah. life into the dry bones and know that God will make breath enter the situation and bring it to life. Oh, come on, saints. In order to win this war, this is our job, the job of every one of us. We must rise to obedience in prophesying life into our fellow comrades. Despite the situation, despite the circumstances, elevating them above ourselves and the difficulty that surrounds. Our God will meet us in this endeavor. This is to be our maxim, our joyous creed, and our delightful practice. We inspire each other to cultivate unity by any means necessary and at all costs. This church is holiness or die trying. We need our brothers and our brothers need us. We want to win the whole war. Turn with us to 1 Samuel 23, 15. As you turn there, say, win the war. Win the war. 1 Samuel 23, verses 15 through 18. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. Prophesy life. And I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two men made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. Jonathan is coming to strengthen David here. And it's, it's probably something that you've heard untold sermons about. Ooh, I know yeah. I have. Oh, me too. And yet the concept remains timeless. Real men of God have always inspired each other to, move, to more than they were capable of alone. Come on, would it surprise you to find out? That the original audience would never have read into this beautiful passage a president and a vice president. No, it's true. A king and a prince. A general and a colonel. You see, as it turns out, 
Our natural default here is to read hierarchy into the text. It soils the truest expression of how we are to view one another as brothers. Church, we've just covered Ezekiel 37 and how we are to prophesy life into our brothers. We do this to elevate each other and inspire each other to cultivate unity. We stand together in order to win the war yeah. by yeah. any means necessary and at all costs. Saints, we have a slide for you. Strong's number 4932, Miss Nay. It indicates a doubling of something. It refers to a copy of something, a mirror image. The part that we wanted to emphasize this morning is Deuteronomy 17, 18. This is the copy of the law. Something that was broken and resurrected in its perfect clarity, holding every detail of God's life-giving word. What Jonathan is saying to David is that he wants to be a mirror image, not just second to David. See, I want, say the word soiled with me for a minute. Soiled. One more time. Soiled. Soiled. Our culture and our biased default has a way of ruining things. The original audience could understand that Jonathan was coming to David and he's saying, I want to be what I see in you. I want to be a mirror image of the life that he sees in David. In David's weak circumstances, he sees it and he admires it and he wants it inside of him. What we have here is a man, being Jonathan, who would not only go to strengthen his brother because of covenant loyalty, but he also seeks to replicate, reproduce, recreate the resurrection power that he sees present within his brother. Now, Jonathan was the king's son but lowered himself to support David. And David was the prophesied king and Jonathan the son of the enemy. But David still risked his life for him. Church, like Jonathan, we strengthen our covenant par partners in the body of Christ by reminding them of what God has already said, prophesying life into their situation. All of this is done by lowering ourselves and esteeming the fixed value of other of our comrades. Holding that fixed value at all cost. Together, say together. Together. We are being built up, becoming perfectly one, united for the purpose of winning the whole war. Church, you want to win the whole war. Yes. Then stand to your feet with us. Unified. This morning we're going to close our war room meeting with some marching orders that will endow your efforts with greater power. Come on. These will solidify your stance as soldiers. They will bring an ability to render unparalleled unification in this body moving forward. As we set out to win the war together as a unit. As we do this, we would like to invite our pastors and our elders up to the front. Saints, as they make their way over here, we're going to put a slide on the screen. My brother told you that you were getting marching orders. Number one, we will prophesy life into the difficult dry situations of our brothers according to what the Lord has already said and what his word continues to speak. His resurrection will enter our bones as we do this.
Number two in our marching orders, we will not depend upon our own motives, but instead we will volunteer our thoughts and invite men of understanding to pour into the condition of our own hearts. We will do this so that we may obtain perfect unity. Number three, we will not settle for anything less than unity-based solutions, carrying the full weight of God's authority, starting between a man and his wife, then the brotherhood, then the fivefold, and all the way up to the elders, just like in Ezra's day. We will commit time to building bonded brotherhood through sweet fellowship. Come on now. Not only meeting together because we must or because there's a problem, but because we love one another and want and desire to be a copy of the godly Abigail traits that we see in one another. Amen. Church, if you recognize that the value that you have for your brothers has been fluctuating based on circumstances or other carnal motivators, today, now is the time to cry out to God to change your character into a man who upholds God's fixed value regarding the gift of the brothers that are in this room. Brothers, if you recognize that you believed you were in unity, you thought you were in unity, but your fight for it does not look like the troubling nature of Job. If your method of unity does not measure up to the biblical model of unity described in Ephesians 4 and Ezra 5, if you have been a king unto yourself, then now is the time to repent. Now is the time to find the perfect unity that can be yours in the body of Christ. If you recognize that you have been resisting and resentful of the physically weak circumstances that God has placed you in, now is the time to repent and find his power present in your weak circumstances. If you recognize that you have been drawn to tearing down rather than building up, to speaking death instead of prophesying life, now is the time to reject this destructive behavior and cry out for purified lips so you can serve shoulder to shoulder with your comrades. If you recognize that your loyalty has been dissipating like the morning mist, then this altar is where your loyalty will be rekindled and your commitment confirmed. Church, we have a special moment here at this altar. You have your pastors, the fivefold ministry, and the elders here at your disposal. If any one of these five or all five are striking you this morning, then do not waste time as we begin to pray. Come and visit this altar. Father, we praise your holy name. Lord, we thank you that you are good and that you do nothing without revealing it to your servants, the prophets. Mighty one of Israel, we say we want your total unity. Lord, we want a fixed value between our brothers. Lord, no more kings unto ourselves, but men that understand how to operate in your government and are blessed for it. Mighty one, let your hand and your breath come upon us. Let these bones begin to revive. Let sinew be added today, mighty one. Let us rise to become the army that you destined us for.